Hi, I'm Pastor Lori Boucher, and I want to personally welcome you to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Are you ready to study the Bible together chapter by chapter? If you go to heartstrong.life and sign up for a free membership, you will get access to the full Bible reading plan and all the bonus discipleship content that we have prepared for you. Open up your Bible and get ready to take some notes because God is going to speak to you today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together through the study of God's Word. Well, today we're diving into Exodus 7 and 8, and there is so much packed in today. So um, just praying that Spirit guides our conversation and, and guides what we're talking about. Um, essentially, there's, there's three things um, that I'm going to be looking at, or three themes I'm going to be looking at. And it goes back to the questions that I kind of always ask, who is God, who is God's people, and who is the world? Because it's, it's displayed so well um, in these two chapters. And so we have this um, Moses character who is, who is God's chosen servant. And we just see how he is being used by God in incredible ways. And the way that God's using him in this um, kind of episode and how God kind of sets things up is really a precursor to how we see Jesus come on the scene later on, um, where Moses is this, is this human who is also kind of representing God in a really unique way. He's representing God in a way that's, that kind of confuses the, the image of who he is exactly. We see in the first verse that we'll get into that he's going to be like God to Pharaoh. So we see this, this chosen servant of God who kind of goes beyond um, just the normal kind of human traits and things. And so that is kind of a metaphor of how we see God will use Jesus later on. So we have that. Um, we have, we have God himself who is going to show himself as being um, the King of Kings. He's God most high. There is no other God like um, the God of Israel. And so um, we see how he asserts his superiority over all of the other, the gods of Egypt and um, the God who exists over the whole earth and in the heavens. And then we see Pharaoh, who is this example of the world. Um, his heart is hardened towards God. And although he sees these signs and wonders and he sees this his exposure to, um, to who God is, he refuses to submit to God. He sees full well who God is and he refuses still time and time again. And that's just a, a great image, a great posture of what the world is as an enemy of God. And so those three things we're kind of going to dive into today and just look at, yeah, some of those aspects being played out, but those are kind of the major themes that we'll see um, that I'm going to be talking about. So let's pray before we dive in. Thank you, God, for this meeting. We thank you that we can meet together, um, that we have the technology and the, um, yeah, just the availability to do this. And I pray that your spirit would speak this morning. Um, God, reveal yourself in your word and reveal what you want us to talk about. Reveal what you um, want to say to us this morning today and just create a hunger in us for your word and create a hunger to know you better. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's dive in. Exodus 7, 1. We start right there. And you could have a whole chorus just on this one sentence. 7, 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. 
right there, God is starting to set up how he's going to use Moses. He's going to, Moses is going to be like God to Pharaoh. And in this terminology that's being used here, God, and I'll refer to him like with his divine name, Yahweh, just because it gets kind of confusing. Yahweh informs Moses that Moses will be like God towards Pharaoh. And the word is not, is not Yahweh there. It's not saying you will be um, like me. Um, he's saying you will be like Elohim, which is just the general term for, for spirit being like low G God, which includes God because God is a spirit building, um, spirit being, but it's a, it's a general term basically saying you will be like a, like a divine being. You'll be like a deity before Pharaoh. And so um, this general term that's used, um, Moses will seem like there's something more going on. It seems like there's some power behind him. He's a representative of Yahweh even though he's not Yahweh himself. And so the question is, why does Yahweh use Moses this way? Why does he even go this route? And there's, I think there's a two-part answer to this. Number one, he chooses to partner with people to accomplish his will. Um, we see that in Genesis 1, and 15, when God blesses Adam and Eve and says, be free from multiply, subdue the earth. He gives them a job. They're supposed to rule over the earth on God's behalf. So, God always is partnering with humanity. We see that from day one all the way to Jesus. He partners with humanity to accomplish this. Well, that's just the way that he always does things. And the second part is, is really interesting is humans are God's image. And the word image, it, it can be interchangeable with idol, the idea of a representative of a deity. And so you could say that like other religions that have wooden idols, that have these representatives of their gods, humans themselves are like the idol of God. Think of the garden as being like a temple and God puts his image into the temple. So it's a, it's a, it's a complex kind of term, but think of it in the same way that an idol represent a God. Humans are supposed to, we're built to, we see in Genesis, be the representatives of God. They're supposed to be his image. They're supposed to be like his idol but they're alive. They're walking around. And so, you know, God says to us, have no idols, make no idols of me because technically that's the role that we're supposed to play. And we see that ultimately in Jesus that comes alive in a brand new way. So Moses, his role as being representative of Yahweh is also an illusion for Jesus. One who partners with Yahweh, but is, is more than a man. We see Jesus is this man, but also more than a man. And that kind of, work is starting to be set up here in, in a really cool way that we'll see. So if we'll jump to Exodus 7, 3, says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my sins or multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. So here God is giving Moses a warning and also an encouragement saying, listen, you're going to go and you're going to be like God to him. He's going to have this reverence towards you, but he is not going to change his mind. And my signs and wonders are going to multiply. They're going to continue and be really extravagant. And he's not going to change his mind. So we learned about Pharaoh that in his pride, um, he will not see Yahweh's signs and wonders with awe and submission. He sees them just as much as Moses sees them. He sees them just as much as Israel sees them. But his response is different. He responds not in on submission, but with arrogance and foolishness. He holds on to his pride and at the cost of himself, the cost of his whole nation. So Yahweh does not force Pharaoh to be hard-hearted. Yahweh reveals Pharaoh's hard-heartedness. 
So as God is, is performing these signs and wonders, he's revealing what's already in Pharaoh. Pharaoh already has this disposition, this pride, where Pharaoh believes that he is their god, Horus, um, the Egyptian god. And so he has this in him, this response, this rejection of God, this response of not wanting to give up his authority, his power. And so as Yahweh performs these signs and wonders through the plagues, Pharaoh is given the opportunity to reveal his heart condition um, just the same way as that circumstances come up in our lives. I think sometimes it's not so much that we suddenly, your character suddenly changes and respond a certain way as much as what was very deep inside comes to the surface when you're given an opportunity to act on it. C.S. Lewis has a quote about that about, I can't remember the exact quote, but something to the effect of like, if you announce yourself before coming into the basement, all the rats have a chance to run away and hide if you stomp down the stairs. But if you quickly suddenly open the door and they're caught, you know, not knowing, and then they're all there and scrambled, you can see them. And so this is kind of a situation where Pharaoh's heart is being revealed as Yahweh gives opportunity. Um, and that's, that's ultimately the posture of the world, how they operate. Um, down to Exodus 7.10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their serpents, and still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So we've looked at Moses, looked at Pharaoh. Now we see God step on the scene, so to speak. And here, he, um, the game is in motion at this point. Yahweh has said, look, I'm going to come against Egypt. I want to take my people out. Moses, you're going to be my chosen servant. You're going to be like an Elohim to, to Pharaoh because you're going to be my representative in a really unique way. Pharaoh is an enemy of God. He doesn't want to give up his control. He doesn't want God to be God. He wants to be God. So the pieces are all set. Now things start to happen. Um, we have Yahweh, the supreme deity, and he displays his power and directly competes physically with the Egyptian deity's power. So both sides are operating in power. And we see that today in spiritual warfare, both sides operate in power. There is power there. But we know that Yahweh is supreme and his power can't be challenged and his power will never be defeated. So Moses and Aaron, they throw down the staff. It turns into a serpent. There's this miracle. There's power behind it. Something's happened. The Egyptian priests and, and sorcerers, they do the same thing. So we know, okay, both are dealing with some kind of spiritual power, but Yahweh's staff eats the other two. Um, so that is a sign to everybody in the room that Yahweh is supreme. And so Pharaoh, after seeing this with his own eyes, after the revelation, he refuses to submit to Yahweh. That was his chance to say, oh, okay, we're dealing with something that's, that's beyond what I can compete with. This is the true God. This is the God most high. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And yet he gets in his pride. He's like, yeah, I'm still not listening to you. And so because of that, we move on to the plagues. And Yahweh is like, okay, this guy is, is full of pride. He doesn't want to submit to me. I'm going to kind of go through little by little now I'm going to reveal myself, and it's not only going to affect Pharaoh and his pride, and now it's going to affect the whole nation. So what Pharaoh's unwilling to do, 
it costs his whole nation. And so Yahweh displays his power publicly against Egypt and their gods. Exodus 12, 12 and Numbers 33, 4 um, talks about how Yahweh comes against the gods of Egypt in both of those things. He comes against and he judges the gods of Egypt. And so we have this scene at first with the serpents and the staffs where there's this kind of, we can assume it's a somewhat private scene where they're in the throne room with, or something with the Pharaoh. They have this little spiritual warfare act. Pharaoh's unwilling. And so now they move publicly. And now Yahweh begins to display himself for the whole country. So the plagues serve multiple purposes, both specific and general. The picture, the big picture with all this is that Yahweh is God most high. There is none other like him. And everything in ancient culture was tied to religion. Um, I've mentioned before in previous times, but everything like atheism is, there's no concept of that. Secularism, there's no concept of that. That's, those are new ideas in, in our culture. Everything from the weather, crops, livestock, fertility, human fertility, government, architecture, leisure, everything, absolutely everything involved the, the gods in the ancient mindset. And so there is no separation. There's no common activity. There's no common area in life. Everything was religious. And so these plagues target certain things that elevate Yahweh in everyone's eyes. And they, they could be both specific and general. So I'll just go through the first few plagues that we see in seven and eight. The first one is the Nile turning to blood. This is an attack on Egypt's life source, um, which is the Nile. They, they saw the Nile as, as a source of life for them. And physically too, like it was the main water source. And so all their agriculture and stuff that they were able to do was based off the Nile where they would pull the water out from there. And so if the water dried up in the Nile, they were screwed really. And so every year there'd be a flood um, as the seasons change and that would bring in a new, like elevate the waters again and they'd have their agriculture and be able to do other stuff. So they were dependent on the Nile completely and not also just physically for water, but also for economic travel. That was their highway, so to speak, where they were able to transport their goods or for have trade and that kind of thing. That's where all that happened. It really was the life in every way of Egypt. And so God attacks that, but also he's, it's an attack, it's a spiritual attack on Pharaoh himself because Pharaoh, they believe that the Pharaoh was the incarnation of their God Horus. And his job was to, the Pharaoh's job was to preserve the Nile's integrity, make sure that the flow of life continued to happen. They believed, I won't get too far into it, but they believed every year that Horus's uh, father Cyrus would resurrect each year and that act was you know the new flood that came in and so it was all extremely religious in how these things happen so if there's any disruption to what's going on it was seen as spiritual warfare which Yahweh illustrates that it that it was and so he takes the life source and he takes pharaoh's own like his his one of his main jobs and he turns it to blood which shows that god kills their life source and it, it like it bleeds out that kind of idea and so it's really crazy and for them like pharaoh that's that's a huge public humiliation on his part in front of his own country because that's a challenge to his power as well as practically for everyone 
they're losing the ability to drink, they're losing um, their crops, that kind of thing. And so it's, it's a physical plague for physical reasons, but it's also really at the heart of it, it's a spiritual attack and it's showing that God can't be compared to anyone else. Um, the plague of frogs was an attack on Heket, which is the goddess of fertility in Egypt. Um, she was represented by a frog. And so this extreme multiplication of frogs shows that she's not a control either. Um, some that they heavily depended on for their crops, for their livestock, to be fertile, to reproduce, to have, you know, new food, to have their livestock for helping with tasks and that kind of thing. It shows that, that God is not challenged by her either, and she has no power either. She is also, on the, in their pantheon, she was associated with breathing life into Horus. And you think of it, when the pharaoh got to a certain age where he became king, he transitioned from human into being seen as or being understood as this. He becomes part of the incarnation of Horus. And so her role is directly tied to where Pharaoh's power comes from. And she's also the one who's responsible to resurrect Osiris each year. And so this second attack of this multiplication of frogs, this plague of frogs, undermines, again, the authority of Pharaoh because where he got his power from and his job that he's supposed to do in, the other God that's involved in this is also being taken out and rendered useless and rendered defeated. And so it's, it's really interesting. We have this, this dual, dual purpose of the physical, what's going on, um, which is important. There's also spiritual background. And then the third and fourth plagues, the, the gnats and the flies, this is an attack on the religious order of Egypt. Um, the priests were required to be ritually clean, the same way that you will see like later on with the, the priests of God, they have to be clean, they have to go through these rituals, they have to make sure that they're not blemished. The same idea was happening in Egypt, where they had to be clean, and they would shave every other day, because they didn't want to get lice, or they didn't want to get bugs, any kind of infestation or something like that. And a lot of people debate on exactly the interpretation of, of the gnats and flies. And people say often that one of the two could be also translated as lice. It's, it's very probable. So these plagues, essentially in the minds of the Egyptians, they cut the Egyptians priests off from their access to the, to the gods in their own understanding. And it's also here so basically because they wouldn't be able to go into temples, they wouldn't be able to do the rituals, those things, because they'd all be ceremoniously unclean in their eyes. So God attacks Pharaoh. He attacks Pharaoh again, um, as well as another major deity. And then in, in three and four, he attacks, the, now he's going down to pecking order. He attacks the religious order. So they, none of them are clean. None of them can go and do the things. And because it's affecting the whole nation, everyone else knows, oh man, we're all like unclean. Our priests also must be unclean. That means they can't be doing the rituals that they need to be do every day. So this is an attack on kind of like the priesthood, the religious order of Egypt. And what's really interesting is it's at this point where the priests and magicians are unable to continue performing these, these um, signs as well. So up until this point, they've been able to replicate what Yahweh is doing. And here, when Yahweh attacks their order, their, their power is shut off. The power is cut off. And they come up to Pharaoh and they're like, hey, we can't do this. Like, we don't have any access anymore to what we were doing before. 
this, what is happening, what this Moses character is doing, this is the finger of God. This is, this is, they are representing Yahweh and his power is real and it's happening and we can't compete anymore. We've lost our touch. And so just really, really incredible how Yahweh makes this public display of his power. And so that begs the question of why does he do it this way? We looked at why did he, you know, why does he use Moses? Why does he say to Moses that I'm going to use you and you're going to be like an Elohim to, to Pharaoh? Why does he do the plagues? And it's because that Yahweh makes, he wants to make a public spectacle out of Egypt because the plagues don't simply affect Pharaoh or even the Egyptians as a whole. The consequences of these plagues affect Egypt's economy, their livestock, their ability to trade, um, their reputation, and their religion. It's because surrounding nations who are trade partners or people that travel and these things, they all hear about it too. They all hear what's going on. And we'll see that in Joshua 2, 10 and 11, when um, they go to Jericho and they say, yeah, we've heard what God did at the Red Sea. And we've heard what he did to Egypt with all those plagues. And she says, we are all terrified of your God. Because Egypt is a huge powerhouse in that day in the ancient Near East. And your God just came through and he mopped the floor with them and leaves no other interpretation other than he is God most time. He's supreme over Egypt. And so she admits like, yeah, us in Jericho, we're all terrified of, of you and your God. And that could have been their opportunity also to submit to God and say, okay, God, we recognize that you are, because they would have had their own gods as well, their own pantheon. Jericho could have said, we recognize, we've heard, we know, and we believe also, they even believed that Yahweh was supreme. And yet they did not submit and say, we, we honor you. You know, they said, no, we're still like, we'll fight you. We're going to hold on to, to what we believe in. We're going to hold on to our own God. And that's their downfall. They, they agree basically to suffer the consequences of Yahweh because they knew full well who he was and they decided not to submit to him. So with this public display of, of these, these plagues and signs, um, Yahweh leaves no room for speculation. If Yahweh had dealt just privately and quickly with Pharaoh, like if Moses just walked in and then Pharaoh drops dead and everything's that and they all walk out, the Egyptians, the Hebrews, and the world might question Yahweh's motives and character. They might say, oh, the God of Israel just walked in for some reason and just you know killed the Pharaoh or whatever else and by miracle just drove out them out. Why did he do that? Well, maybe he's a big angry God who's just full of violence. Maybe he's, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And instead, Yahweh is patient and public with Pharaoh. And this preserves Yahweh's integrity while displaying his superiority. So in Yahweh choosing to do these plagues affecting the whole nation, it's a very public thing. Everyone sees what's going on. Everyone sees also then that Pharaoh does not submit that he won't give up his control. He won't give up his authority, even when he is defeated time and time again in each display, each sign. Everyone knows, and I'm sure the Egyptian people, the civilians, were uh, not too happy that, you know, they were affected from day one as well with, with, the, with the plague of flood. They were all affected, 
and they were looking at Farrell like, hey, like maybe there's another option here. Maybe we should listen to them. And Farrell, at the cost of his whole country and the cost of the reputation of his country and the surrounding nations, um, and his arrogance won't give up his control. So in this act, Yahweh is, is preserving his integrity. Everyone knows who he is as, as Israel moves forward into the conquest. Um, everyone has this reputation of Yahweh. And, and that is supposed to be an opportunity for the world around the surrounding nations to submit to God. They have all the information necessary to say, okay, we're going to acknowledge that Yahweh is supreme. And you see that other nations don't. They hold on to their pride. And so there's a, there's a lot to learn from that in the sense that as we operate in our relationship with God, as we operate as people who are in Christ, but also living in this world, we're going to see that, A, and we can take heart that God has said, um, Jesus has said that he's overcome the world and he will be with us. And although we're going to go through these troubles and things, he is with us, just as Moses, God performs the, the miracle of the snake before he actually has to do it. So in preparation, God is preparing Moses and he is, he is displaying and he's revealing himself to him so that when Moses goes out into the world and he's faced with his opposition, he's faced with the, the world's response to God, Moses has this confidence and he's saying, okay, I've, I've seen God do it once. I know he's going to do it again as long as following what he's doing. And then we have, so you have this, this warning and encouragement of what's happening in the world. God is with us. He won't be defeated. Even when it looks like there's no hope and Pharaoh keeps saying no and keeps saying no, that Yahweh's will will come about and that his sovereignty can't be challenged. And so, yeah, there's, there's many, many themes. It's hard to pick like one or two, but there's, there's a lot going on in these, in these couple of chapters. And so I encourage you all, if you haven't already to for sure, go back and read it again and just, just allow Holy Spirit to speak to you and apply these things to your life, apply these things to your relationship with God. And I'm going to, I'll pray here. So father, we thank you that you are God who is supreme. You are the God most high. You are the King of Kings. You are the Lord of Lords. There is no other God like you. You are the creator God who, who stands in the heavens and rules over the earth. And your name is above every other name, above every other power, um, principality. And God, you, you can't be challenged. And we pray that we would be used by you, that we would be representatives of you, that we would reflect your glory, just as Moses would go later on and, and his face would shine, um, reflecting the glory, God, of his intimacy with you. God, I pray that we now in Jesus would be representatives of you in this world, that we would be um, symbols and signs that there is something greater going on, that there is, is a God that is greater, that helps us, that is with us, that, that empowers us. And so as we move forward into a world who rejects you, God, and, and a world who even sometimes when they see you, they still reject you and it can be confusing to us. God, I pray that you give us encouragement to continue doing your work, to continue to stay faithful to the mission that you've given us. Um, and despite how we see the results happening, I pray that we'd be encouraged and know that, God, you are with us, that you see us through, that you have overcome the world. Um, and so we can take heart and continue following you, continue to be um, blessed by you and to be protected by you in all that we do and all that we are. And so I thank you, God, for this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, you continue to speak to us throughout this day. 
continue to reveal your word and yeah, just to bring revelation, God, that we'd understand you better, that we would have reverence towards you, um, that we would not be hard hearted, but we would be just overjoyed and, and submit to you, knowing that you are amazing, that you are a good God that we can trust in and that you love us so much. So thank you, God. Bless this day as we go out in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the Heartstrong shop with all kinds of awesome merch like hoodies, t-shirts, and mugs to remind you of this awesome journey of discipleship that you are on. Log in to heartstrong.life to access all your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible boot camp for kids. Let's become heartstrong disciples together.